Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now on the September 11th, as we spoke to Tom Michaud of KBW earlier, we now speak with BNP Paribas USA, Jean-Yves Fillon. He joins us uh, right now. We're thrilled that he could be with us today. Jean-Yves, the commitment of BNP Paribas to New York City has been steadfast. Give us your thoughts on this 19th anniversary of this tragedy. Well, thank you. Thank you all for having me, by the way, today. Uh, I, I would like to start this morning in really acknowledging the significance of today's date, uh, remembering those uh, we lost on September 11th, 2001. Um, this is going to be forever in our memory and, uh, and, and obviously particularly in, uh, in, in New York City. I look, Sean, even at the uniqueness of this in the pandemic, and that speaks to what every business is doing, which is ear to the ground, trying to feel what business is doing. J.P. Morgan bringing sales and trading back, headlining today. What will be the action of BNP Paribas in North America in the coming weeks? Well, you know, in my position, obviously, safety of employees is my absolute priority. Uh, however, we've started, uh, you know, a return to the office plan, but it's gradual, it's phased in, we are using rotation. And uh, to give you a sense, uh, at the peak of the pandemic, we were probably 95% of the staff working from home. Today, we're 80 to 85% of the staff still working from home. I'm expecting this to stay probably the way it is until year end, and uh, we'll reassess where the pandemic is uh, early in 2021. Johnny, if let's talk about something that I guess is hard to do, but let's pretend just for the sake of this argument, this conversation, that the pandemic goes away. Perhaps we have a vaccine in the next 12 months and it's widely distributed. What do you think will change permanently for you operating in New York City? Well, I would say the remote working, I believe, uh, it's going to be part of the new normal, even under the scenario you just described, uh, John, as you know, we've, we've discovered we can be so effective serving clients, communicating uh, 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 during the pandemic. By the way, make no mistakes, I, I miss the face-to-face -face, uh, interaction. I wish, by the way, like we always do, I would be with you in the studio, in person, but it's here to stay. I, I see another trend in terms of uh, smaller real estate footprints in the dense urban areas, consequence of more digitalization and working from home. Obviously, business traveling will be dramatically different as everybody will reassess, you know, the need to really, uh, you know, travel around the world, even though I would love to host you all in Paris one of these days. And from my clients, um, I see an interesting trend, and it's been back and forth, but particularly for the U.S. clients that are more international, a real, a real willingness to, for re-domestication of supply chains. For economics, I would say, uh, uh, independence, as well as, you know, job creation reasons. A lot to unpack there, John Eve. Let's just talk about things operationally very briefly. We've seen with debt issuance, for instance, that suppliers just kept coming through even in the summer. And I guess that's an, an example that we can work from home and we can get that debt supply away in an efficient way, even in August and perhaps even in places like Europe as well. I just wonder from an operational standpoint, what you did find difficult working from home, what a bank found hard to do. Well, I would say, well, at BNP Paribas, we were probably fortunate to be already very, you know, very digital, but still, you know, to 
Nobody was ready to have this amount of staff working from home. Then it was around investing in bandwidth, more laptops, and, um, and, and making sure operationally, uh, you know, uh, activities like, you know, trading and payments and, and clearing would continue to be, uh, to, 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 to be fine. Um, another dimension of working from home is uh, it, it's actually, it's harder you know, <laughs> somewhere somewhat, because it's chop, 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 you don't have much time between meetings. And, you know, some, some of our staff, you know, at times, you know, might have felt isolated and were here to provide the support and hopefully the psychological support. However, uh, I think a significant part of my staff uh, likes the getting closer to the <coughs> communities. No, uh, the main fear of staff, by the way, is uh, public transportation coming to the office and making sure the office is safe here. And John, to your point, another real investment we had to make, we all had to make, is to make the workplace safer, much more adapted to this new way of working. Johnny, that's, that's a really good description of the day-to-day -day challenges as people try to get back to work in this current environment. On a broader sense, you talk about the re-domestication of supply chains. There's also this deglobalization wave that's been enhanced and the tensions that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Do you feel it being a French bank operating in the U.S.? Uh, obviously, we do feel it. Most importantly for me, our clients feel it. And... Um, uh, you know, BNP Paribas is headquartered in France, but it's really a European bank today. Then we, we, we obviously have to make sure we can uh, support clients, uh, help clients managing this uncertainty you just, uh, you just described. You know, an area of uh, increased activity because of this uh, uncertainty and uh, instability at times, volatility, has been a real high demand in terms of hedging, you know, protection strategies across rates, currencies, commodities, and equities. Going forward, there's also a question of the consumer strength versus the investment bank. John was talking about the robust issuance of corporate debt, a record August for that. Do you expect the consumer to take on more of that as we do see this ongoing strength in consumer spending? Or do you think that those who are putting faith in that, uh, perhaps the JP Morgans, the Goldman Sachs of the world, have gotten ahead of themselves? Well, I think that's a, that's a very important point and important question here. Well, on, on, on the capital markets, by the way, you're right. It's, it's, been, uh, it's, been, it's, it's been amazing uh, in terms of how active they've been across, you were mentioning it earlier, you know, high yield, high grade, across all asset classes, CDOs, CLOs, infrastructure, project finance. Um, the, what I see still, I see a contrast between the very active capital markets and what I would call the real economy. And uh, uh, how uh, consumer confidence and consumer spending is going to be evolving over the next few months is really going to be depending on what John was mentioning before, how the pandemic is being managed and uh, how fast do we uh, manage to get a vaccine. And I would say not only making it work, but uh, distributing it widely. And, and I think that the whole consumer dynamic, dynamic will be there. As BNP Paribas, and uh, again, my life keeps me very modest, but our integrated, diversified business model, you know, retail, wholesale, uh, help us manage, you know, the various, you know, uh, factors and trends, you know, consumer, investment banking, corporate, institutional, uh, uh, that, you know, obviously have been fluctuating depending on day-to-day uh, -day conditions. Jean-Yves, I think the uh, McKinsey have called this the great acceleration. And I just wonder from your standpoint where ESG fits into that great acceleration, how much emphasis has been put on that in the last couple of months moving forward? 
Uh, it's been, uh, you know, ESG has been in the map already for many, many years. We actually this year have exceeded the one trillion of, you know, uh, green bond uh, sustainability financing issuance around the world. Uh, the pandemic has been an accelerator. As you know, we've all probably better understand, figured out the impact on our communities, health, economies. Uh, and by the way, <clears throat> I've seen this trend both on the investor and issuer side. Uh, BNP, BNP Paribas, uh, one of the only ones, but we've been a pioneer in, uh, in sustainable finance. Uh, today we lead in the table rankings in terms of loans, uh, uh, in terms of bonds. And we re recently actually were one of the first banks to structure a sustainably linked derivative. Then it's really being part of the product offering. And I think it's a trend that is going to be reinforcing itself uh, over, the, over the weeks and the month. Uh, maybe John, I want to add something here. And as ESG, John, the S of ESG is actually uh, taking more and more visibility, you know, uh, uh, on the social side. Uh, you've seen, you know, COVID-19 rescue bonds you know, b becoming much more of a factor here. We at BNP actually underwrote uh, large uh, uh, transactions in Europe and in Latin America for, uh, you know, very committed uh, supranationals, institutionals, and even banks are getting into this, this stream. We're lucky to have you on the program with us this morning. Johnny, thank you. Johnny's Philly on there. It's BNP a real Paribas, pleasure. USA thank you all. CEO. Thank you, sir. What we care about on this September 11th, and we are thrilled to have with us Michael Shaul of Marketfield Asset Management. He's one of our most astute conversations on The View Forward. Michael, give us your sense of enthusiasm to own equities right now. You know, it is kind of split. You know, there are sentiment measures um, that I think track older, older, more established investors that show plenty of skepticism, the AAII being the clearest. You know, outflows from mutual funds and ETFs, um, you know, have been significant for the last few weeks. And yet at the same time, yeah. very obviously, you know, the end of the summer saw this mad rush into a, a limited pocket of the U.S. equity market. I mean, just a crazy rush. I mean, it's just interesting to say the least. What will be this? What will be the next catalyst? Do we go to the Fed meeting here mid-September? No, I, I think the Fed has sort of taken itself out of the equation. You know, I think Powell was very clear at Jackson Hole that, that the Fed is going to be following the current policy for the you know for the foreseeable for the foreseeable future. No, I, I think it's going to be more about the resilience, the internal resilience of the equity market itself, whether support at the 50-day, particularly for the Nasdaq 100 holds. You know, and if it does, then I think this is just a consolidation that goes on, you know, goes on and breaks to the upside at some point in Q4. Or, you know, if that 50-day gives way, then, then you potentially have more internal selling pressure in the most popular parts of the U.S. equity market. Or we can get a broader rebound in this equity market and the leadership rotates to elsewhere, Michael. Do you think we can establish that in the coming weeks and months? You know, I do because I, I you know, it's only what a, a five-day sell-off now. Um, you know, so it's not really a very long one. But you know, what is notable is is some things have not gone down. Most of the cyclical sectors in the U.S. have sidestepped this transportation. Um, most of the industrials, a market like Japan, you know, which again is very sort of cyclical, has shown absolutely no interest in you know in this sort of mini in this mini correction. And I, I always think that not going down. Um, is the first sign that something is 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 moving towards is moving towards leadership. So I think we do have some hints of that. I think, as I say, you know, for that stuff to break out, I think you need the Nasdaq to be range bound. I think if the Nasdaq actually broke down, 
Um, it does enough damage to people that, that there's probably a, a you know a temptation to generally liquidate. Um, you know, and then you'd be talking about relative outperformance by not going down as much as the overall market, which, which isn't quite as good as breaking out. Michael, what do you think the big distinction is between you and the long tech crowd? Um, you know, I think I think partly I've been wrong for a lot of years. You know, I've underestimated tech's you know tech's opportunity, but I, I, I do think that that people have missed the degree to which the what I call the durable goods economy globally has really been a beneficiary of this COVID crisis. That the, the 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 personal sector and the corporate sector has been forced or encouraged to spend significant amounts on 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 retooling itself. Um, and that that is a, I, I believe, a sustainable, a sustainable change in behavior. Michael, how much do you change positioning ahead of the U.S. election? Um, not a great deal for for myself. I, I think whichever party gets control, um, you know, isn't you know. I think there are degrees of fiscal support, but I think both are, are going to be generally fiscal supportive. It's not that we have austerity versus spending, um, you know, between you know between the two parties. And I, I don't think monetary policy changes a great deal. You know, we haven't yet seen the market show a clear preference. If you went back to 2016. By now, we knew that the market wanted Hillary Clinton to win and Trump to lose. Ironically, it changed its mind three hours after the election result. But, but you know, 2016 was, a, was, a, was an example of a, of a very sort of politically driven equity market. You know, I think right now the non-political factors are bigger than the political factors. Which is kind of interesting considering the fact that a lot of people are uh, indicating an increase in volatility bets around that November 3rd election. When you talk about fiscal preference, meanwhile, we're getting no fiscal deal whatsoever in Washington without really a sign that there's going to be one. How much of a sell-off do you expect if we really get a breakdown in talks and it does look very unlikely that we get anything ahead of the election? Well, you know, we still have a lot of monetary support. Um, and I think the part of the economy that is that is most affected by the failure to get a deal done is is not that widely represented within you know within the equity market. So so far the market's been been patient. Um, I think there is a, a belief that something you know something will get done, and even without a stimulus bill being done, you know I, I think the extension to the debt ceiling means you know we're not dealing with the kind of fiscal cliff risk that we had you know that we had several years ago. So I, I don't yet see the market showing a great deal of, you know, a great deal of concern about that. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder, Michael, whether that's actually because of the data so far, that the data hasn't broken down and the recovery has continued. What would your read be on that? Uh, look, I, I think that's true. Um, I, I think that, that um, you know, I mean, my, my view of the U.S. economy is you have a labor market, which is, you know, back to the early teens. It's somewhere between 2012 and 2014, depending on which metric you look at, you know, with much, much more fiscal support, even without a new stimulus bill, and much, much looser monetary policy than we have. So, you know, I I really think that that the U.S. economy has enough support without a new, um, without a new, without a new stimulus bill. Um, you know, as far as the equity market's concerned, now you, you may have social concerns that don't get addressed and need to, you know, you know, need that money. There may be, you know, issues of genuine poverty and hardship, but that's not what drives the S and P 500. The S and P 500 is not controlled by sociologists; it's controlled by investors, and, and they really have a different outlook on on what needs to get done. Michael, great to catch up. Stay well, won't you, Michael Shaw there of Marketfield Asset Management? Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. 
Right now, to give us an update on the economy, and maybe it is the resiliency of the American economic experience, is Michael Ferroli of J.P. Morgan. His service to economics over the recent years has been absolutely extraordinary, particularly in the measurement of what our potential is. Michael Ferroli, what is the potential GDP calculation of America given a pandemic? Is it possible to calculate that? So like a lot of things, including inflation right now, there's a lot of noise that uh, is going to take some time to uh, to let filter through before we get a better sense of how things are evolving. Now, has the pandemic affected trend growth in the U.S.? Uh, perhaps. I think there's still quite a bit of debate about that. I think one of the easy things to say is that we've had a period of slower capital spending uh, in the middle part of this year, uh, which will hold back productivity growth. That said, capital spending, like many other uh, aspects of aggregate demand, is recovering uh, pretty nicely in the third quarter. So that's why I think it's probably wise to hold judgment here for at least a few more months to see where things settle before uh, radically rechanging one's view of potential uh, GDP growth. Mike, are you surprised by how balanced the inflation debate is right now? I would have expected overwhelmingly a consensus around disinflation, and that's not what we experience on any given day on this program. What are you experiencing in the conversations you're having? So I do think most people that I speak with are on the disinfl- are in the disinflationary or low inflation camp. But I think it's reasonable that there are going to be two sides to this debate because conceptually uh, the pandemic is both a supply shock and a demand shock at the same time. And so at least from first principles, there's no uh, necessary reason to think that uh, one side or the other is going to hold sway here. Uh, I, I believe in part the reason I'm in, uh, more in the disinflationary or low inflationary camp is that while the supply constraints uh, were temporary, uh, particularly concentrated in uh, the second quarter. Uh, the the slowness and the weakness in aggregate demand looks like it's going to be enduring for longer than that. Uh, in other words, the unemployment rate, while it's come down quite nicely in recent months, probably will be elevated, we think, for several quarters. And so that's why uh, I think on net, the evidence is going to lean us toward uh, low inflation uh, outcomes for the next few years. The Federal Reserve, Michael, have said repeatedly that they've shifted the framework. The reaction function has changed. They've made that argument over the last 12 months. Tolerating higher inflation is not the same as engineering higher inflation. Are there any policy moves left, Mike? Uh, (laughs) That's a great question. So, you know, there are a few things they could do to bolster uh, the recent move and their uh, recent change in their framework. None of them are going to be um, home runs here. So they can obviously uh, tell the market that they're not going to hike rates until inflation gets above 2%, mm-hmm. which is fine. Uh, and they'll probably eventually do that. The market's not even uh, pricing in hikes until 2024 to begin with. Right. So it's not like this isn't like 2009, Ken, where the market was really chomping at the bit to price uh, rate hikes nine months in the future. Right now, I think the market has learned that right. lesson. So that while that's, a, that's good that the market's learned that lesson, it also reduces how much uh, these types of moves by the Fed can really provide further uh, further stimulus. Michael Ferroli of J.P. Morgan, and of course, their huge investment on Park Avenue and new facilities, their belief in New York City. Right now, many images here from a very different 19th remembrance of September 11th. Right now, Vice President Pence and Karen Pence are walking into the ceremonies. Again, very much pandemic affected. We just saw images of uh, Vice President Biden and Dr. Biden 
Biden, along with a former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg. I believe I saw Governor Cuomo there as well. I, I must say, Lisa Bram, it's a little, there's Vice President Biden. For those of you on radio, uh, the images here are, uh, are quite poignant. Lisa Bramo, it's for those on radio and TV. It's just a whole lot harder to do this this year because of all those masks. Yeah, especially when you look at the concept of mourning, when you look at the concept of resilience, usually it has to do with coming together, being face to face, being close, and that has been shattered by the pandemic. These images also raise a question about the recovery. And Michael Faroli, I do wonder what we're seeing with respect to the recovery of the labor market. I don't think we made enough of yesterday's employment figures, the jobless uh, filings, that came in higher than expected with the number of individuals uh, receiving unemployment benefits actually increasing week over week. Michael, is this a significant data point that marks a turning, uh, a sort of souring of the labor market that has been recovering at a pretty fast speed? So I think that's fair to, uh, I think that's a fair response. One problem though is that these jobless benefit numbers, the weekly claims numbers, have been a bit skewed uh, in recent months by issues uh, with processing of filings. Uh, and a lot of those continuing claims that you mentioned uh, is for this pandemic uh, unemployment assistance program, which uh, the reporting by you know, the jobless claims numbers are reported by the 50 states and aggregated together. And how those states are reporting that has been uh, not a very clean process. And so while on the face of it, I agree with you that it's not a uh, it's not a helpful indicator that we stalled in the progress we're seeing in those claims numbers. Uh, that hasn't been a perfect indicator uh, in recent months. If we don't get another round of fiscal support, where will we end the year with respect to the unemployment rate? So uh, we have something in the high sevens. Uh, I think without uh, further uh, fiscal support, that could be in the you know remain in the low eights. Uh, that said, you know, look, I, I think the the response that we're seeing in in Capitol Hill, you know, I wouldn't want to say fiscal policy is uh, perfectly endogenous with respect to economic developments. But I think the fact that the economy has been performing well or better than expected, let's say, over the summer months may have reduced some of that urgency uh, in, in Washington to deliver more stimulus. So I think we have to take uh, the lack of stimulus or lack of progress in stimulus alongside with the better numbers together when we look at how the economy is evolving here as we go into the fall. Michael Farrelly, great to catch you up. JP Morgan Securities Chief, U.S. Economist. It is September 11th, and Thomas Showed visits with us each year. Of course, his tour of duty at Keith, Briett, and Woods uh, after their horrific moment of 19 years ago. We're thrilled that Thomas Showed could join us today and particularly pleased that he will stay with us and speak of the changes in banking uh, here into this half hour as well. Thomas Showed, what a difference September 11th this year. And to me, the pandemic also makes us almost uh, remember the, the wonderful ceremony we've seen for the previous 18 years. Yes, it's uh, it's uh, there are a lot of similarities with uh, with, I think, really other crises that are going on with this pandemic. I mean, I think 9-11, if it was anything, it was a story of resiliency, I think, both for my firm as well as for New York and the industry. Um, And here we are again right now with more challenges, both, you know, global recession as well as the pandemic. And and I'll tell you, I uh, over the years, uh, over the 19 years, there have been many times where there have been more challenges, as we all know. And I'll never forget a story uh, that uh, that happened uh, during the global financial crisis 
we had just had a, a senior meeting at the firm. I think it was after Fannie and Freddie had been put into conservatorship. Mm -hmm. And one of my colleagues came up to me and he said, Tom, I know this is a challenging time and we just discussed how we're going to address it. But remember, uh, we've seen what the end of the world looks like, and we know this isn't it. And frankly, uh, when you feel about what happened on 9-11, how devastating that was, I think it's really built in some of the resiliency that's going to help New York and other, other cities as we get through the current situation. With the current situation and with the strength of New York City, what is the Michaud plan? How do we get through this? Barry Eichengreen at Berkeley made very clear he thinks this moment we're going into of economic contraction and, frankly, challenges for banking is going to be tougher than February, March, and April. What's the Michaud plan to drive KBW forward? Well, First of all, I don't necessarily share that belief that that we're going to go back and retest where we were in March. Um, so I don't. And I think remember, too, I think you and I had talked, too, because there were a lot of concerns that were we going to do the global financial crisis all over again with the banking industry. And I think, if anything, uh, the American banks have demonstrated that a lot of the reforms from Dodd-Frank, while some of them were maybe a little bit too onerous, they still worked and that the industry has plenty of capital and lots of liquidity. Uh, so I think the banking industry is in, in good shape, but by no means. Uh, and, and clearly what I'm hearing from the banking industry is that things are getting better. Loan deferral requests have, have declined. Uh, they're feeling better about credit quality generally, even though there's still a lot of concern about hotels and other areas. But a lot of the stimulus programs have been working. So it's not going to be easy. It's going to be bumpy, but uh, we're not in the camp that we think that this is going to roll over and get get really hard again. And and um, and our plan is is uh, to continue just to, to stay focused, do good research, make sure we've got communications with our clients and that, um, you know, and that we continue to be there for them um, as we move forward. Tom, what are the symbolisms of the lights to the sky? Uh, I, I, I think it's, uh, first of all, I think it's remarkable how much support there was for those uh, lights. And I think it's just a, another reminder. And what's beautiful about it is that you can see it from so far away. And I think it's a moment to think about, uh, think about those who, who lost their lives in that attack. And an attack is exactly what it was. Um, and I think it's somewhat of a beacon to the heavens about what New York is capable of doing and what our country is capable of doing uh, when really put to the test. But, uh, Tom, you know, fr from far, from London, it feels like this is a very different America. The way that the U.S. came together for 9-11 is not the same way that the U.S. is coming together for coronavirus. Why is the U.S. so splintered now? Well, uh, first of all, I, I know what I can speak to, which is the remarkable unity following 9-11. Uh, and, uh, and that was really remarkable. Uh, I also can speak to some of the energy that 9-11 created in the volunteer community for the follow-up, and I can speak to as what we're doing specifically. For example, I'm a board member of something called 9-11 Day, uh, which is an organization that worked with Congress to make 9-11 a national day of service. We think it's now today the biggest day of volunteer engagement uh, during the year in the country. Um, and so this year, our focus is uh, we're going to be delivering 40,000 meals today in 30 cities to medical first responders and frontline care workers 
Um, and and it's an idea where where we're going right. to not let not let the the bad guys, frankly, define what 9-11 is. And so the, the answer to that question is we're working hard to make sure that we haven't forgotten that spirit after 9-11. And while there will be ebbs and flows, and I wouldn't I wouldn't underestimate America and our ability to pull together when we really need to. So I wouldn't underestimate it. But uh, but right. I think we're working. So, Tom, you think that earth. you're coming together? Is is the U.S.? I mean, has it changed, or do you think that actually fundamentally this is the same country now that it was 19 years ago? I I think that we've had a long 200. I mean, that's a very big and bold question. Uh, I think we've had a 200-year history of ebbs and flows, but I think the fabric of the country country still remains. There, there are. Don't don't underestimate the people who you don't hear speaking up one way or another on the extreme, because my instincts are is the majority of the country wants to do the right thing and wants to be unified and wants to see uh, a great outcome for all Americans and, frankly, for the world community to be a little more peaceful. So don't underestimate that. Now, Thomas showed with us this morning with KBW, of course, Keith Briette and Woods, and of course, Steve Folk. Tom, you know, th this was a move that was largely cheered by many people yesterday. It's the first female in a top Wall Street job. Does it show how much progress we've made, or does it actually show that there's a real lack of diversity because everyone cheered it and she's one of the very few women at the top? Well, first of all, uh I think that she's highly qualified for the job, and I think that's the most important thing. Uh, she has played a senior role in uh, in the consumer businesses at Citigroup, which is a, probably the most important business at Citigroup. She's had international experience. She looks like she's highly qualified and is the right person for the job. And also, I believe it was telegraphed. So uh, it, I'm delighted that there's a woman leading the uh, leading a top bank in the country. But I think the most important comment about Jane is that she's got the skills, the background, and the talent to have a good go at it as a CEO of a really important banking company. Thomas showed on this 9-11, we have remembrances back 19 years. For Mr. Corbett and others, it is simply remembrances back what? 12, 13 years. I want to review this now because there's great criticism about the profitability of the bank. Thomas showed, is it safe to say with Citigroup that they're lucky they're here right now? because of the leadership and management of uh, Michael Corbett? Uh, I think that Michael Corbett paid, played an enormously important role at Citigroup. And I, I agree with you, Tom. I think you got to turn back the clock and look at where the bank, that, yeah. where he took over. And, 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 and I've been thinking about why now, because our, my firm and, and our analyst who follows the company, I think many were surprised it happened now. But I think when they write the book on, on Michael Corbett's period at Citigroup, they're going to see that he he stabilized the bank. He built capital. He built he built uh, built liquidity in the bank. And, and while Citigroup does lag many of its peers in terms of valuation yeah. and profitability. But now I think I think the question is, what's next? And if somebody's at the tail end of their career as CEO, it's hard to set up what's next for the five next five to 10 years. I believe Jane is 53, oh. according to public sources. So you need a new CEO to do that. And I think in that regard, the timing's good. And Tom, this is so important, folks. The, the, the heritage of Keith Briott and Woods from Tucker, Anthony, R.L. Day and uh, KBW and the roll-ups of the 1980s and all that, Tom. I mean, do you just anticipate that the way that Citigroup gets retail mass is a redux roll-up of what we saw from the 1980s? I, I, I don't. I think uh, 
I think Citigroup is an internal improvement story. And I think that if, if I were having a conversation with Jane now, my my advice would be to really Citigroup's got a great footprint. They're a, a significantly important company, but but they do lag in terms of profitability, their peers. And I think continuing to focus on steps they can take to improve it, uh, to improve their performance. And look, the, the digital era in banking is accelerating. The pandemic has been driving that. Citigroup has all the skills they can to do that. In some ways, they don't have to build branches across America. They can use digital engagement, which they're very good at. And, and as they continue to hone the profitability of the bank, I think there's an opportunity to catch up with peers. But, but the, so, you know, Tom, concretely, what, what is it that Jane Fraser needs to do? Is it, is it just that it's the, the, the group is too un, unruly? I, I think it's it's frankly operating leverage. They need to uh, generate more earnings off the revenues that they have. And I think that's pretty much it. So I think it's going to be I, I really think that while there will be offensive revenue, certainly opportunities for them. I think you're going to see the real mm -hmm. focus on the expense side of the equation. And, um, you know, they, they one of the things I think, too, about Michael Corbett is that they finished some time ago. I'm going to get I'm off the top of my head, I think, 18 months, 20, 24 months ago, finished running off City Holdings, which, as you know, was their runoff. Right. Business. Uh, and, and I think there's going to be a continued uh, relentless uh, approach on the expense side. Uh, and I, th I think that's going to be an important part of the now, equation. Thomas Michaud, thank you for these important comments on this day of remembrance. Mr. Michaud is with KBW, a Stiefel uh, company. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.